of Romans. If you're not sure where Romans is, there on the first few pages of that Bible will be a table of contents. There is no shame in using a table of contents to find the book of Romans. And so uh, as you turn there, I'm just going to give you a quick reminder of uh, what we are going through right now as a church. So um, uh, there are a few new faces here right now, or maybe people that haven't been here in the last several weeks. I just want to let you know uh, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Right now, uh, the lead uh, pastor, main preacher, if you want to call him that, of Mercy Hill is, is not here. He is, he is on what we call sabbatical, which is a period of rest and rejuvenation for him. It's not simply a vacation uh, where he is being renewed and he is uh, spending time studying and growing in his own faith. And uh, we're, we are, as a church have gifted him with that. And so for last week and this week and the next two weeks, you're stuck with me. Sorry. But that's what you got. Yeah, amen. Amen. Um, so that's what you got. But we're going to take this as an opportunity to do a short series through two verses at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. The first two verses is what we're doing. And I shared with you last week that the reason we're doing this is because Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 mark a transition point in the book of Romans where this guy named Paul who wrote this has just spent the last 11 chapters talking about what the gospel is and how the gospel works, how it actually accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish. But in Romans 12, there's a transition to where it goes from talking about what the gospel is to talking about the effect that the gospel has on our life. And the reason that something like this is so important for us as a church and so important for our community is because it is, without question, extremely prevalent for people in our context to think that salvation is something that only affects your life after death and not your life while you're still living it here on this earth. Romans 12, 1 through 2, and then all the way through chapter 15 says that that is not true, that the gospel actually has quite a big effect in your life. And last week, what we looked at is that before we do any kind of question asking of, and, and trying to figure out, well, okay, well, then what change is it supposed to have in my life? How does this apply to my life? We have to look at the foundation Because Paul in chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, everything that I'm about to tell you has this strong foundation of the gospel, which he just spent 11 chapters talking about. So last week, we laid this foundation of what the gospel is and how it works in our life. Because if we don't have that, we do not have nearly strong enough a foundation to do anything that I'm about to tell you about today. So... My suggestion to you is that if you have not listened to the sermon from last week, you can get it on a podcast on iTunes, you can look at our Facebook page, you can go to our website, it's all there. I really encourage you to read that. But what we looked at last week was that you can summarize the gospel in a very simple way. At its most basic level, the gospel is God's mercy towards sinners, that we are all sinners But in the gospel, the characteristic of God that is displayed more than any other is the fact that he has shown us mercy because of our sin. But today, we are actually going to dive into Romans 12 and see what are the implications of that. If I have, in fact, received God's mercy, how does that change me? How does that affect me? How does that not only change my position before God after I die, how does it change my life now? So... In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, we are, uh, I'm going to read there, and we'll, we'll jump right into it. Chapter 12, verse 1. 
He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's as far as we're going to get today. I told you, two verses in four weeks. We're taking it slow. We could go slower if we wanted to, but we ain't doing that. I'm not going to put you through it. But this is rich. This is so rich. But today, uh, we're coming to this, and we say, like he said, by the mercies of God, and then he says, to present your bodies. So now he's getting into the commands, what you are supposed to do. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now look, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read my Bible, and I see sentences like that, I'm like... Yeah, what does that mean? Well, how am I supposed to do that? Like, I mean, I see there's a lot of different words in there, but honestly, that's not like a normal thing that you'd say. So how do you actually put this together to where it makes sense? And if you ever come to a place in the Bible like that, that you're having difficulty understanding, like I did when I first read this, it helps just break it down into its parts and take it one bite at a time. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take this one bite at a time. And that's the first question we're going to seek to answer is, what does this mean? So if you want to think about our time this morning, we're going to spend the first half of it asking, what does this mean? And the second half of it, how do I do it? Now that I understand what it means, how do I do it? So first now we're discussing, what does this mean? So let's take this piece by piece, part by part, and try to figure out what he means. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We are bringing something as a sacrifice to God. And what we are bringing is our body. The idea in the Bible of presenting a sacrifice to God is nothing new. The first instance that we have of a sacrifice in Scripture being offered to God is in Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall happens. What, what happens? You have Cain and you have Abel, and they present their offerings to God. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the land, of vegetables and fruits, and he brings it to God. Abel brings an offering of an animal to God and presents it before God. And you know the story after that. Maybe you do. I don't know. Maybe you don't. Go read Genesis 4. You'll find out. But we have all the way back then offerings being presented to God. And it keeps going all the way until in the book of Leviticus. I don't know if you've been, I know there's many people here that have been doing like a read through the Bible and a year plan. Uh, man, getting through Leviticus is challenging. It, it can be tough because it's just like paragraph after paragraph, page after page of God prescribing to his people sacrifices and offerings and festivals that you are supposed to present to God. But the, the reason he did that is because God having a relationship with his people, there's got to be a mode of doing that, a way for God and his people to interact with one another. And he did that through giving them a sacrificial system so they can relate to him. So for the people that Paul is writing to, this is nothing new. The whole idea of offering a sacrifice to God is actually pretty common, pretty normal to them. What would be different is that for this sacrifice, you're not presenting an animal, you're not presenting grain, you're not presenting your money, you're presenting your own body, yourself. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So this is not you giving something else to God, this is you giving you to God. Let's take it another bite. Let's take that next bite. It says, present your bodies... As a living sacrifice. That's, that's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? 
It's like where two words put together to describe something like cancel each other out, like jumbo shrimp. Like jumbo is big, shrimp is small. So jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron. This is an oxymoron, a living sacrifice. That doesn't make any sense. Sacrifices die. How are you supposed to present your body as a living sacrifice because sacrifices die? Well, he's, he's using a play on words here. He's describing something that your sacrifice is not necessarily about you dying. There's a couple passages in the Bible we can turn to uh, to make a little bit more sense of what he's talking about. Um, in the book of Luke, you don't need to turn to, uh, to these, but you can if you want to. But uh, in Luke, we're going to be coming to uh, chapter 9 here really soon. And in chapter 9... Jesus is talking to these people that are trying to follow him, and he says something to them that's kind of discouraging. It says, if any, and this is chapter 9, verse 23, if you're turning there, it says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, and like follow him, be his follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In this instance, Jesus, in in a very real way, is telling these people, look, if you want to follow me, there is a very real chance that you will die. But in another sense, he's also talking figuratively. That there is a sense that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, that means that you are dying to yourself. You are denying yourself daily, taking up your cross to follow after him in his footsteps. So that's that's a kind of death that you die Another place that, uh, that uh, we can go to is in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. This is also written by Paul, who wrote Romans. And he's, as he's writing this, he's in prison, and he's writing to this church at Philippi about his time in prison. And he says this, uh, starting in verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be, listen to this, Christ will be honored in my body, okay? So here's again the idea of your body somehow being used by God. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says that it is possible for Christ to be honored in my body, both by, yes, it may mean my death. Christ can be honored in my death for him, but Christ can also be honored in my body by my life. Well, how is that possible? How is it that you can honor Christ with your life? Well, he explains a little bit more what that would mean for him in verse 22. Philippians 1, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So for Paul in Philippians chapter 1, when he says that he desires for Christ to be honored both in his life and in his death, by your life means that when you are alive, as you live your life, your life, your body means fruitful labor, working. You do not offer a sacrifice to God by the way that you live but by the way, I'm sorry, by the way that you die, but by the way that you live. There is a certain type of living that is a sacrifice, that is a gift to God that you give up to him. It's not just by your death. So that's living sacrifice. So we've gotten bodies, we've gotten the living sacrifice. But then 
he also describes this sacrifice in another way. He says that it is holy and acceptable to God. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, when you would present a sacrifice to God, that sacrifice would have to meet certain uh, specifications, certain qualifications, in order for it to be accepted by God. Uh, it, uh, number one, uh, in order to meet the specific sacrifice that you were trying to give, it might have to be a certain kind of animal. Uh, like you weren't able to offer a goat, maybe you had to offer a bull, right? Uh, but it went beyond that. A lot of times it had to be an animal without blemish, without anything wrong. Uh, like it had to have never had like a broken leg or it might not have to have like some kind of disease that makes it a, a blemished. Or if it's like you offering your money or grain or something like that, like it ha God says he wants your first and he wants your best. So like if you're offering the first fruits of your crops from that year, you can't like wait until the end of the harvest season and then whatever you have left over, you give to God. It's like, no, you give him the first part of your harvest. You let him have this first so that he can have it. There's these qualifications, these specifications in order for this sacrifice to be acceptable to God. If it didn't meet those, God would not accept it. The same way he did not accept Cain's offering, and, but he accepted Abel's offering. And so in the very same sense, when you're talking about offering up your body as a living sacrifice to God, there are certain qualifications and standards that this offering has to meet. And he says that it has to be holy and acceptable. The idea here is that there is righteousness. It's not just your life. It is your and your living that is offered to God. It is your righteous living it is your holy living. A life that is filled with acts of righteousness is a life of sacrifice to God. And that is the kind of sacrifice that is acceptable to him. So let's, let's put all this together now. We've taken individual parts now. Let's all put it together. There's actually a verse earlier in the book of Romans that can help us do that. So uh, if you're in Romans 12... Turn to the left a little bit to Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, I explained to you last week that the book of Romans is very much kind of like a linear thought by thought. Everything kind of builds upon itself. And so for a lot of what we're looking at, we can actually go to different places in Romans to get a good explanation of what it is. So that's what we're doing right now. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Paul tells him, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay? So again, there's this idea. He says, what does he say? Present yourself. Sounds a lot like present your bodies to God. Bring your bodies to God. Give to God your bodies, yourselves, and your members. When he says your members, he's talking about the parts of your body. This is physical here. This isn't just like what I think about. This isn't just what I put my mind on. And this isn't just something that's happening internally. This is, I am using my hands, my arms, my feet. I'm using my mind, like your physical mind, your brain, to think and to serve God. You are presenting these things to God as a sacrifice to be used in his hands as instruments of righteousness. 
That's what it means to present yourself as a living sacrifice. You're saying, you're not, it's not like saying, God, I'm going to go and I'm going to die for you. You're saying, God, I'm going to go and I'm going to live for you. I'm going to make myself available to be used by you in your kingdom to do your work, which is righteousness. That's what it means to present yourself to God. I love the imagery that comes when he says that you are an instrument because that, that presents the idea that what you are after you have been redeemed by God and you've received his mercy and you're a Christian following him, what that means is that you're not just a trophy on God's bookshelf, you're a tool in his toolbox. He, he now uses you. He now puts you to work. He makes you holy and acceptable so that he can now use you in his kingdom. And then... Paul, when he says this next, so go back to Romans 12, because there's one more part. He says that you are to present your body, it's a living sacrifice, it's holy and acceptable, but then he says something that is honestly kind of a curveball. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Some, a statement about worship in this verse is maybe something that you didn't expect, and that would make sense if you don't have the proper idea of what worship is. Um, we can talk about worship as being sitting up here and playing instruments and singing. Uh, we can talk about worship as like you out there singing along or like in your car and singing. And we, we tend to, what I'm getting at is we tend to just identify worship as singing. And let me tell you, it is. Worship has two components to it. Worship has an internal component and an external component. The internal component is when you worship something, what you are doing is you are loving that thing, you are cherishing that thing, and you are valuing that thing. There has to be an internal component to true worship. But if those internal components exist in your worship, it will result in outward physical manifestations. Okay, And one of those manifestations is the things that you say, which is singing. When we sing, we are singing about truths that have an effect on our heart. It could be what you pray. It could be sin that you confess. There is a verbal aspect to it, but there's also a living aspect to it. There is an action-oriented aspect to what you worship. That's where sacrifices come in. That's why he says that our worship to God is bringing and offering a sacrifice. Let's go back again to the Old Testament view of sacrifices. When somebody would present a sacrifice to God, it, that actually cost them something. Like That's important to remember. They didn't just have like this plethora of goats and bulls and birds that they used. They had to take that from their own flock. They had to take that out of their own possession. They, if it's a first fruits offering, they are taking grain that they are dependent on to feed their families or that they are dependent on to have for next year to plant for next year's crop. They are taking that and taking a risk by giving it to God instead of keeping it for themselves. Why would they do that? Well, it's because there's something that's much more valuable to them than their grain or their animals, their livestock, their livelihood. God is valuable to them. God is precious to them. That's why I told you last week we've got to understand that 
All of this is motivated by the fact that we have received mercy from God. That is our motivation. That is our foundation. If you have been brought from death to life, if you have a truly good understanding of just how awful of a sinner you are, but that God has still been willing to give you mercy in the midst of that, that all of a sudden causes God to be the ultimate thing that you value, that you cherish, and that you love. And the acceptable sacrifice that God requires of you as your worship is your life, is you. That's what he expects of you. That's what he asks of you. So that's what this means. But now we're probably asking the question, like, that sounds great, Scott, but how do I do that? Like, how am I supposed to make this happen? What does this actually look like in my life if I'm going to be a sacrifice to God by the way I live? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 are kind of like a summary statement about what follows in the next several chapters, all the way through chapter 15. And so if we go through the rest of chapter 12, we get a pretty good idea of what it would look like for you to present your body as a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable and a life of worship to God. He gives us two things. The first thing he gives us is in verses 3 through 8. The next starts in verses 9. I'm going to tell you what the two things are so we don't lose track. But the first one is that you give your life to the service of God. You serve God with your life using your spiritual gifts. The second way that we do that that we're going to pick up on in uh, verse 9 is that your life, the way you live, the character that you display is a display that points to the character of God. Okay, And so those are going to make more sense as we go through these passages. But first, let's look at uh, chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 3. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In verse 6, if you take just the beginning and just the end of that verse, he says, having gifts, use them. And that's his command to us, is you have been gifted by God with a gift. Use it. That's how you serve. That's how you live your life as a sacrifice. I, I mentioned earlier that God has not saved you and God has not purchased your soul through the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And he didn't have Jesus rise from the dead to give you a new life like we talked about today just so that you can sit on God's shelf as a trophy. He has actually saved you from your sin, given you a new life through the resurrection of Jesus, and empowered you with the Holy Spirit so that you can now be used in his kingdom to accomplish his purposes. The empowering of the Holy Spirit has given you a gift to make you useful to God as 
a workman. And so, what is your gift? That's the question that comes next. And uh, we talked about this morning before service started with our, the team that leads worship and does things during the service. And um, I asked them the questions like, you know, like this sometimes produces an anxious feeling in you, doesn't it? Like the idea of actually thinking, oh, God has given me a spiritual gift and I, uh, I have to try and figure out what that is. And it's like we, the idea of there being like a set predetermined list that I need to fit and figure out where I am at in this uh, is, is kind of scary. It's kind of confusing. And it's like, well, God, like, I don't know. Like, it doesn't come out tattooed on my arm when I'm born, you know? And it doesn't like, you know, there's not like heaven doesn't open up when we are baptized and say spiritual gift of tongues, you know, or spiritual gift of prophecy or spiritual gift of hospitality. Like, that, that don't happen. And trying to figure this out sometimes is made so spiritual and so out there and so heady that it causes anxiety in us. And sometimes it causes us to say, well, I'm, I'm afraid to even try something because I have not heard confirmation from God that this is my spiritual gift. And so we are afraid to move forward. We're afraid to try anything. What I want to try to do right now is bring this down to earth for you and make it really simple and really practical because it does not have to be this super spiritual thing, this big, like, crazy thing that if you mess this up, man, you're not really a Christian. You're going to lose your salvation, and you're not using your spiritual gift. That's not what this is like. This is actually really practical. So let's, let's think about this practically for a second. But first, I want to deal with a problem. I, around this conversation, I have heard a lot when people are trying to determine, you know, what is my spiritual gift they ask themselves questions that look a lot like this. They sound like this. What do I like to do? What fits my schedule? What makes me feel like I've made a difference? You know what the problem is with all those questions? If you're trying to figure out what your spiritual gift is, you've made your spiritual gift all about you. Your spiritual gift isn't about God, and it's not about other people. It's about you. It's about what makes you feel good, what, makes, what fits your schedule, and what you enjoy. But that's not what we see spiritual gifts are. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul starts verse 3 by giving us a warning. He says, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. To think about something with sober judgment is to think about something as it actually is true reality. When you are drunk, you are not able to see reality as it truly is. So to think soberly about something is to think practically, realistically about something. What I think you can do instead of asking questions like that is you can do a very simple two-step process to determine what your spiritual gift might be, a way that you can serve in God's kingdom. The two-step process goes like this. Step one is to live your life by a few key principles. We're, and we'll look into what those are. Step two is to ask yourself a list of practical questions. It's that easy. The key principles, let me list those for you. Principle number one is to organize your life around God's priorities. This has to do with your schedule, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you think is important. If you, look, I'm just going to level with you. I have not talked to a single person in this room that will not tell me that their schedule is busy. We're all busy. Everybody's got stuff going on. 
But the reality is we are busy with the things that we prioritize. And I'm not saying this about some of you. I'm not singling anybody out. But what I will tell you is this, is that if your life is so full of stuff that if you take your schedule and you determine what your priorities are on that schedule and you put it side by side with what God's priorities are, do they match up? If they do not, that means that you are not organizing your life around what God's priorities in his world are. If you are going to offer your life as a living sacrifice, you might have to sacrifice some of your priorities to meet God's priorities. That's just the reality of it. Sacrifice means you're losing something. Sacrifice means something's going to be hard. You might have to reorganize your priorities in life. Second principle you need to live your life by is this. I call it the John 3.30 principle. Uh, John uh, chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist is speaking, and he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So if you're going to live your life as a sacrifice to God by your living, a principle to live by is this. My goal in life is to make myself smaller and God bigger. In other people's lives, whatever way that may seem, that's a big, broad principle. The third one that I would suggest to you, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. This is just a good place to start. Third one is this, make other people the beneficiary of your gifts. So if, if you desire to use your gift, if you desire to serve in the kingdom of God, and you want that to be a God-centered gift and not a you-centered gift, then make sure that other people are the beneficiaries of those gifts. Make sure that what you're doing and what you're serving in your life is actually helping other people, not just you. So take those principles and now that we have those principles, let's just ask ourselves some practical questions that could help us determine where we can serve in God's kingdom. Question number one, what areas actually need help? Uh, it, it could be a problem if you have this idea in mind, this kind of service to perform, this thing to do, this program to start, but it actually doesn't fill any of the current needs that exist. And I'm not just talking about needs in our church, okay? That's not what I mean. I'm talking about needs in your community, needs that your neighbors have, needs that your friends have. The spiritual gifts are designed for you to use on a person-to-person basis, not through a program that you get involved in. What are the actual needs that you see around you? Question number two, is there something in my life that other people tell me I'm good at? Notice what I didn't say. Is there something that I think I'm good at? Uh, Look, let's just be real. There are times in our life where we think that we are really good at something, but we're not. (laughs) And that just takes a little bit of humility. Sometimes it takes a difficult conversation. And if you want to guard yourself from being put into a position where you are constantly trying to do something and you meet resistance, listen, it might be because you're not actually good at that thing. So something you can do is ask other people in your life, what do you think I'm good at? Or, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I need you to be honest with me and tell me if you think I'd be good at that. It's very practical, very simple. Another question, do I meet the qualifications necessary to meet this need? Some roles, especially within the church, require certain qualifications. If you are going to be a pastor of a church, you have to have a certain character in order to do that. It can't just be anybody. If you are uh, going to... Uh, serve in a position of leadership. There are certain personality traits that need to be present in you, or there are certain personality traits that need to not be present in you so that you can actually be an effective leader. 
Do, do I actually meet the character and the personality of qualifications to fulfill this job well? And then last question I ask you that's intensely practical. I think many of you in here actually need to hear this. What do I legitimately have time for? So that, that kind of works in tension with what I said earlier about organizing your life around God's priorities. But at some point, you actually need to stop and ask yourself, what do I legitimately have time to do? Some of you feel like you have to be superman and superwoman. You can't do that. God has actually placed limitations on your life where you and the rest of us have to depend on other people, not just you. If you try to heap up, if you, look, some of you in here, and the reason you do this is because you see so many needs out there, or people are constantly asking you for your help, and you are so servant-hearted that you say, yes, 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 I'll do this. And what ends up happening is that either you're not effective in any of them because you're so spread thin, or you burn yourself out, and you just can't do any more, and you just, you just fizzle away. He says that we're a body with many gifts, one of, of another. You are only one small part. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think by trying to take it all on yourself. Let somebody else take some of the work. Listen, some of you are limited by things in your life that you just can't do anything about. Some of you have very young children. And listen, the more children you have, the less time you're going to have. Some of you are married. Being married takes up your time. Being single has a lot more time available to you to do things than if you have a spouse and a family. So listen, moms, your primary ministry, your primary responsibility is to your own kids. So don't feel bad if you're not able to be involved in more things because you are taking care of your kids. That's the primary ministry that God's given you. One day your kids will be grown and out of the house and you'll be involved in other things. But listen, right now you might be in a, a season where you have to work long hours to meet the needs of your family. Guess what? Your family's your first ministry. You've got to do that. But at the same time, make sure your priorities meet up with God. So there's no easy answer to that question, is there? How do I prioritize God's priorities and how do I live within the bounds that God has currently allowed me? There's no one answer to that. It's a tension that you need to find clue, you can ask other people to help you find out what that tension is. So, I'll sum it up by saying this. I think that if you live your life by those principles and you ask yourself a series of practical questions, you will easily find areas in the church, in this world, in our town, in your family that you can serve and that you can be used by God, empowered by a spiritual gift to bring about his glory, to bring other people to him. So that's the first way we do it. The second way that we do it, we find in verse 9. And this is living your life, displaying the character of God. Verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What this is essentially telling you is that the disposition of your heart and your actions and your desires are to love people, are to serve people. 
that you have characteristics of loving others, of seeking purity and holiness, that you treat others with care, honor, and respect. What you're doing when you do that is essentially, you can think about it like this, you're simply a billboard advertising who God is. God has saved me, and as a result, I am now going to make my life a display of who God is by imitating him and his character. That's what you're called to do. The question comes in, how is this a sacrifice? Like, how is this a way that you present your body, present the way that you live as a sacrifice to God? Well, I stopped at verse 13 for a reason, because we get into that in verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If our lives are to be a billboard of God's character, to display and to advertise to other people what our God is like. That means that if his primary character quality that is shown through in the gospel is his mercy, mercy must also be the primary characteristic that this world should be able to describe us by. And that will require a sacrifice from you. Any time in your life where you are put into a position where you can either condemn someone in your life or you can show them mercy. If you choose to show them mercy, it is on you to absorb any impact of hurt, betrayal, anger, evil that is done to you. You have to absorb that. In order for you to show people mercy, you cannot then ask them to perform certain actions to earn your respect back. That's a sacrifice. That is a life lived in self-sacrifice when you have to be willing to endure pain, endure hurt, endure suffering, endure wrongdoing, even from people that you love and that you care about. Your kids, your spouse, the people you work with, your neighbors, other family members. And can you imagine when he says, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And then he says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you. That's really important. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The problem with that is you can only control you. You can't control other people. So that means in order for you to display God's mercy and kindness means that your display of mercy, your display of kindness might not change the other person at all. That sounds like a sacrifice to me. But 
We do this because the way that we as Christians, having been set free of our sin by the mercy of God, are called to be worshipers of God. And as worshipers of God, the way that we worship Him is by giving our lives, our time, our energies, our money, our schedule, our priorities. We give those to God and say, God, they are yours. Use me as an instrument in your hands and use my life to display your character to this world. There will be many people in this world that the reason they first become curious about God is because they see God's character displayed in you. We are recipients of God's mercy, marked by mercy to display God's mercy to this world. That's how we worship. Let's pray. Father, this is an incredibly difficult thing for us to legitimately approach you and ask how we can ever sufficiently worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, my prayer for us right now is that as we consider these things, as we go into a time of response to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, would you help us evaluate ourselves, Lord, if we are living lives that could be described as worshipful, that love you. Lord, have we given our lives to your service to be used by you in any way that you choose? God, to display your mercy and your grace to a world that does not deserve it, to people that don't deserve it, Lord. But we also did not deserve your mercy and your grace. Father, would you help us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.